Today in the Lazy RPG Talk Show, I am going to take a look at some new Dwarven Forge virtual tabletop backgrounds that patrons of Sly Flourish can get access to. We're going to talk about recent discussions from Wizards of the Coast about the 2024 core rulebooks, getting the terminology right, and talking about some of the changes they're making to playtesting. I'm going to talk about why 5e and D&D aren't exactly the same thing anymore, and this is kind of a new bit of messaging of my own that I want to propagate. We're going to talk about building situations and a concept that kind of comes from this idea of high trust. Trust Trad Adventure Design, an interesting article that I read this past week, plus some patron questions from the 20, June 2023 Patreon q and I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in RPGs. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive things like the City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a dedicated Discord server, the monthly Q&A, a bunch of exclusive adventures, video previews, and much more. In fact, I'm going to show you one of the things that patrons, just one of many things that patrons get access to for patrons of Sly Flourish. And to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you as always so much for your support in helping me put on shows like this. One of the things I've been doing, it's a, it's kind of a hobby a hobby project of mine is I, I'm, I'm a fan of Dwarven Forge. If you are not familiar with Dwarven Forge, Dwarven Forge is high-end tabletop terrain for your in-person fantasy role-playing games. Beautiful stuff. It's all, the, the sculpts are all done by artists up in New York City. They are pressed into a type of material they call Dwarvenite. Dwarvenite is essentially like an ABS-style plastic. Very, very rigid. Not rigid, but very strong. They've literally run over it in a car, and it doesn't really damage the piece. Super strong stuff but also really really beautiful stuff very you know you can you can see like a very simple layout here of a, a single dungeon room i'm a big fan of their dungeon the dungeon products in particular i are, are definitely things that i like this one which is unfortunately sold out zaltair's game room excellent set of accessories so i among it is it is like a separate hobby from an rpg hobby you do not need dwarven forge in order to enjoy an rpg and in fact uh, dwarven forge has costs beyond its dollar cost it takes up a lot of space and it takes time to set up so it's not exactly a lazy tool but i still like it very much and there's things that they've done in the engineering that i think are really smart like putting magnets on the bottom of all the pieces so you can put them on one foot terrain and that way you can slide in each room one at a time or slide in a couple of rooms i've been using it a bunch but it's not exactly now we know more and more people are playing games online they're playing D, D online they're playing rpgs online online is a big one dwarven forge is definitely a physical accessory and i've also got myself a nice big collection of dwarven forge and beyond just showing off cool pictures of what my setting looks like i was like how do i make this stuff useful to other people so my thought was what if i built fun dwarven forge layouts and then took pictures of them and made them available to patrons so that patrons can then add it to a virtual tabletop. So that's what I've done. I, I talked about this on the show before, but I've added some new ones and I thought it'd be fun to look at and look at where it's come from. So patrons of Sly Flourish get the link to go to this Dwarven Forge virtual tabletop backdrops. These are all transparent pings, so you can take the image and you can drop it straight into your Albear or your, or your, whatever your virtual tabletop is of choice, and they show you a room like this. They're all done in an isometric layout, so I've designed them to be kind of like a three-quarter view because I think for 3D terrain like this it really looks best in a three-quarter view. I have a few that are top on, I just don't think they look quite as good. So you definitely see areas like this is like a nice three-quarter and some and they're all kind of designed to be sort of moderately universal that you can use them in a variety of different situations you want a cave with a big pit in the center 
Yeah, here's your cave with a big big pit in the center. So I added some new ones just recently, just like this past week. And I actually have two different views of one of them. So here's kind of a fun chamber where you have this weird like idol in the center of this muddy pit, a little area for your boss monster to stand, little little light up stuff and a little cave entrance that goes into it. That's one that I added. Here's another one, a larger room. This is like an upper floor and a lower floor. This one I did of like a warehouse. The idea was that there's a bunch of places down here where a bunch of evildoers are sitting and plotting their things and the characters might be able to break in you can have some other bad guys up here there's a little office up here for somebody and then i have like this little secret cult chamber a serpent cult chamber up in the upper left so and then i think i have another view of that where the the, the, the cult chamber is taken out in case that's too person in the case that's too specific and this one you can use from the other angle so those are a couple of different views so what what do you do with that well you can stick that directly into your albert rodeo uh here so here's an example where i took the image i dropped it right into albert rodeo didn't make any changes at all and then threw some tokens on it and you can see what it's like to have your tokens move around in the battle space there's still squares so if you want to count your squares you can still count your squares right you can still see that these these two pit fiends here these guys are in a bad you know poor bart dorn malarkey and mez are in a bad way because they got to fight two pit fiends plus like an archmage and the archmage you know standing up here but you can see how it works really nicely and it and it you know it scrolls in really nicely i like it in fact i have used it in my own games if i have my if i have a game that is in person but we play online if somebody's not feeling well or we have people that are playing remote i can just take my pictures of the battle mat and then drop it in albert rodeo and it's like we're playing it's like we're playing online one thing just to be just to be clear is that i talked to dwarven forge and asked them is it okay if i do something like this i mean it's really it's not not even that weird from a copyright thing i own the materials but like i didn't want to overstep if they were thinking about getting into something like this i was like maybe i don't want do that so i reached out to them they said no you're cool absolutely it sounds cool go with the gods so i am going with the gods and i'm putting that out there so this is just one example of like i don't know dozens of different maybe not dozens but like more than a dozen different exclusive things that patrons of sly flourish get for just a few bucks and it's a way for me to enjoy building nice dwarven forge arrangements that are pretty costly but you get to capitalize off them you get to go and grab them and you don't have to pay two or three hundred dollars you can just grab the image and drop it into your VTT and share it. And it's also already built for you and everything else. It doesn't take up any space. So I think that was really cool. This is, this has been a fun project. I, I don't expect a lot of people are using it. Here's, here's like a fun, this was a real fun chamber that I created. You want like a cult, cult hideout. This is a cult hideout. It's a little darker because I wanted the lights to really stand out in it. So I don't expect a lot of people are using this. Mostly, I think a lot of people like their top-down maps when they're using VTTs. That's cool. But if you wanted to have kind of a fun room, and I know there's a couple people that have been using them, and I'm really glad to hear, I'm really glad to hear that they're getting at least some use because I think, I think they're really a, a, a cool, a cool thing. And you can download the whole package. You can go in, you can click one download, you get every one of the images. I don't know how many there are now. A couple dozen. A couple couple dozen different ones and i have like a bunch of general rooms these aren't quite as good i'm not really doing many of these but like if you want to just a, a, a real simple hallway right here's this real simple hallway fun stuff and then you can see here some of the the top view which aren't terrible but like it's not quite the same these are one of my some of my older ones that i was when i was first doing this and they look cool but they're look at that look at the, the glowing green lights are really cool and like a you know it almost looks like a waterfall flowing into this chamber really kind of neat stuff so patrons i hope you enjoy it and if you look at this and you're like wow that's really cool here's like a the, the big smoke you know kind of a fun spot so patrons take a look at it and uh, i hope you enjoy it i think it was it was a lot of fun to make these it's something i do probably every couple of weeks i add one or two more as i'm adding them whenever i'm making a setup for my game 
So it seems like Wizards of the Coast has been working on a bit of their messaging in the last week. There hasn't been a lot of news this past week in RPGs in general. And I'm not going to like say like, oh, well, there's not a lot of news. So I guess we'll go back to picking on Wizards of the Coast. So I don't really want to get into that. But there were a couple of things that came out that I thought were interesting. And they led into a larger discussion that I want to get into about the difference between 5e and D&D. So the, over on the designer blog, which is strangely hard to find, they have this whole section here on clarifying language, one D&D and the 2024 core rule books. As we continue playtesting and discussing for the upcoming Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, Monster Manual, and even release dates for the DT Virtual Tabletop and evolving DD Beyond toolset, it's important to clarify the language you're using around these projects. You know, it would have been important to clarify that, I don't know, a year ago when you first said it, but hey, whatever. One D&D, this is kind of fun. One D&D is the overarching initiative shaping the future of the game. In other words, it is the VTT, D&D Beyond, new updates to D&D. I think it included the D&D Beyond purchase. They said this at the summit. It includes the D&D Beyond purchase and revising the fifth edition books. But lots of people have been referring to the books, the new books as one D&D. Oh, when one D&D comes out, thinking of those core books. So they're saying that's not one D&D. Which makes sense. On the idea of 1D&D, if anybody that has worked for a large company knows, companies love to say things like 1X, where X is the name of the company. Senior executives hate it when lower-level and mid-level executives build fiefdoms that are almost in competition with one another. They want everybody to get along. They want everybody to be driven. So they often do like, we're going to have a new 1X initiative. I went to a hospital recently. I've, I've, I had a family member that was in a hospital. I went to that the hospital and it was like, one such and such. Like, you know, welcome to our new one thing and it was like even the hospitals got like this marketing thing of like we're all one team right everybody wants to always be one team one D&D was their attempt to be one team and then they tried to use it externally and then we all got confused and started thinking that D&D was one D&D so it almost like you know the branding the, the, the marketing and branding of this thing has not been stellar it has not not given the popularity of what's been going on it hasn't been stellar and then one of the other problems they have with this well what do you call these new books a lot of people have been calling them 5.5 a lot of people have been calling them one one d and d and you know what do they call them so they're saying we call them the 2024 core rule books we say the 2024 players handbook 2024 monster manual 2024 dnd book or dm's guide and that that separates it from the 2014 version so if you say the 2014 players handbook versus the 2024 players handbook but i think what they're saying is whenever they are going to not they only are going to use the year designator when they're comparing the two otherwise dnd is the latest version dnd will be the 2024 version of dnd i think that's going to get confusing i remember apple trying to do this and apple was saying like oh we're just going to call it the iPhone. We're not going to call it iPhone 3 or iPhone 4 or iPhone. You know, they had like an iPhone 3.5 and they're like, it's just the iPhone. They're like, well, what about the old iPhone? iPad, I think, is like this. Nobody knows what iPad is which. They just say like, oh, it's a seventh generation iPad. iPad is whatever the current iPad is because they don't even want you thinking about the old one. And I think that's the issue with D&D is when they publish, like they're probably going to go through a big expense to publish, to, 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 to design, develop, play test and publish the new core rule books. When they do, they really don't want you thinking about the old ones again. They want you to buy the new ones and love and hang on to the new ones. So they're just going to say the player's handbook, meaning the 2024 player's handbook. But there are millions of copies of the 2014 one that are still out there. So what do you call those, right? So this is one of those where like the, the branding is a little off. So what are they going to call them? Well, I, I, so I can't say, I can't speak for everybody, but I can speak for me. And when I speak for me, I'm going to be referring to them as the 2024, either 2024 D&D books or the 2014 D&D books, or the 2024 Monster Manual Dungeon Master's Guide to Player's Handbook, or the 2014 Dungeon Master's Guide Player's Handbook and Monster Manual. So I'll be close enough to their vernacular 
that will we will be able to communicate and understand one another as we refer to this. So they had that section, these three paragraphs that are like, you know, don't get confused with our branding. That's bad branding. If you if if you have to explain to us how your branding works, your branding didn't work. Then there's a video that Jeremy Crawford did with Todd Kendrick to talk about the fifth edition core rule books. Part of this was the same kind of marketing, explaining the 2014 and 2024 language thing. They even they even stuck it here in the show notes to explain. So again, trying to fix the branding issues that they've had with the new core books. And then also talking about what they are, reinforcing once again that these are updates to the books. They are not a new version of the game. Right. We've been we've we've kind of heard them saying this. We're also like, I don't know if I believe you because things like subclasses are changing and things like, you know, a lot of there's a lot of things that have been kind of moving and shifting around and it's starting to sound like, I don't know, is it compatible? I don't know. There's a lot of talk about that. So, you know, short video, 12 minute video where they talk about this. And there was a couple of interesting points that came from that video that I wanted to highlight. One is we already talked about one D&D is just a marketing tune Two, Watsy refers to the books as the 2024 core books or the 2014 core books. But then one of the things that was in here that was kind of deep down was during the play testing, Crawford said that they're kind of pulling back on some of the things that they had stepped real far forward in. So he brought up subclass progression. He said that we move subclass progression so that subclasses start at third level and they were normalizing when you get your subclass option. They said that the, I don't know where they got, how this worked out. They said the, the move to third level, they still want to hang on to. That idea that you don't have to choose a subclass at first level. And that makes sense that the idea of like, if you're a cleric, why do you have to pick the fact that you're a cleric and you pick a particular species and you pick a background and then you have to pick your domain at first level. Like you're picking your biggest, all of your biggest choices are happening at first level and then everything else is up to date where other people are picking at third level. I get it. I also wonder like, is it really that big a problem? Has it been that like the game is more popular than it's ever been? Do we really think that this is the part that's setting it back? I don't know. And also you are then making it difficult for any of the transfer of previous subclasses to make their way into the new version. Is that the real problem that the game has had? I don't think so. Like, I don't, you know, if I look at the issues that fifth edition has had, that's not one of them. That's not, you know, I never in 10 years of writing about and studying and running and playing and talking about fifth edition, the subclass, the, the sub, that subclass problem never hit me until wizards brought it up and maybe they know stuff i don't that could definitely be and i've heard other designers say yeah that it really makes sense and i get it is it worth breaking backward compatibility for that even though you can have like converters and stuff like that so they said that they're, they're moving the subclass progression they're still going to keep it starting at third but the other ones may not you may not gain subclasses at the same levels for every character and then i'm like if you're already screwing with them why not why not? I don't know. I don't know where they're getting it from and I don't know what problem they're trying to solve. You know, it, I don't know. It's really confusing. And it confused friends of mine who were like, really, we're all thinking about it. We're all like, we're all very confused. But hey, whatever, right? It's just coming out. And that gets to kind of a point and some of this is, you know, some of this is, has changed my feelings about the game overall, which changed significantly at the beginning of this year, right? We're seven months past the OGL fiasco. And my change of the game has, my, my view of the game has changed. I think the view of the game has changed for lots of people. I've talked to people at conventions whose view of the game changed. I've talked to people online, m members of our, our SciFlourish community over on Discord. Different people have different points of view. I'm not throwing them out, right? I'm definitely going to buy these new core books. And I'm, when, when Wizards of the Coast puts out products that I want to buy, I'm going to buy them. I'm still using D&D Beyond. I was using D&D Beyond for a game last night. So... You know, I'm not I'm not throwing them out, but I'm also doing two things. One is recognizing they are not the whole of 5e. 
gets to our next big topic. And there's a lot of other good material out there that I, that I want to use. And I don't, I, you know, the other hard part, and this is going to sound hard, but I don't think anybody would disagree with me on this. We can't trust Wizards of the Coast to do what's right for the game. We, we, you know, we can't. I don't even think people who work there, there, there are people who work at Wizards of the Coast that are working on D&D who are fantastic designers, fantastic people, working there because they love the game, working there because they, 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 they really, like, this matters to them, right? I, I, I know them. I, I've met them. I've talked to them. And they're passionate about this game. Each of those individuals, they can't trust the company to necessarily do what's right by D&D. Executives can make big decisions at any point that could, that could harm the game for the bottom dollar. I don't think anybody can really disagree with me on that. Like, I don't, I don't think you say no, because Wizards of the Coast is not a company whose bottom line is doing what's right for D&D. <laughs> it's about money. But, you know, we can talk about that. That's not really helpful and doesn't really do anything. But it, I think it's important why I bring that up is because those of us who do love the game and feel like the drive and motivation, like my drive and motivation is to help people enjoy running games with their friends. Right. I want to help GMs run great games. That's that's my drive and motivation. And if I can't trust that they're always going to go the right path, then what's what are some of the right paths? And some of the right paths are dis distribution. It's like you're buying stocks. Oh, I could buy one stock or I can buy an index fund that has all stocks. I could buy what is it? VT, the, the, the Vanguard all in one where it's like you're buying into every company in the world at once. Right. Good and bad. You're buying all of them. And the same way is kind of like hedging your bets with D&D and with 5e. And, and that's where I think about like how we call it this whole idea that Wizards of the Coast is trying to get around their branding. And they're trying to say like, you know, D&D 2024, 2024 core rule books versus the 2014 core rule books. But D&D is D&D. And this D&D is this, you know, backward compatible with the old D&D. So it's all good. In the same way that they're trying to change the marketing, I think it's important for us to, to think about the game differently and think about how we refer to things. And on a couple of different Discord servers, I got involved in the conversation of 5e. Is 5e the same as D&D? And they were saying like, what if we call it 5e 2024? Right. Two different Discord servers brought this up. What do we call 5e 2024? And my thought was like, well, what about all of the other things that are 5e that aren't D&D? &D, right. What about Tales of the Valiant? What about Level Up Advanced 5e? What about Core? core what about Esper Genesis? What about C7020? There's all of these different sort of 5e versions out there that aren't really falling on any particular year. Those are all 5e systems. And then when we talk about supplements, well, now we got thousands and thousands and thousands hundred thousand tens of thousands certainly hundred thousand maybe i don't know quite a bit of 5e supplements that could exist with any of these things so the important message that i want to get out there that i that i think is important and i'm hoping you agree with me and if you agree with me then in the conversations you're having with people you can make this clarification that 5e is the underlying system it is the underlying engine to many different role-playing games and to many different publishers not just wizards of the coast and not just DD. and again esper genesis is a good example esper genesis is using the 5e engine underneath and it is a space-based space you know science fantasy game developed by a totally different publisher same tales of the valiant is a fantasy rpg based on 5e and you know and so the lord of the rings is built on 5e so lots of different systems are built on 5e so we don't want to just hand the branding of 5e back to DD, back to wizards of the coast they don't really hold the branding of it anymore they hold the branding of DD. they are the only company in the world that can make DD. 
So, and I know that there's this idea of like, well, in the, in the eyes of most people like that aren't into the industry, that aren't publishers, that aren't like checking it every day, D&D is lots of things. In fact, D&D could be Level Up Advanced 5e. D&D could be Tales of the Valley. They don't necessarily know most reasonable people that are not like deep into the hobby, but enjoying the game. When they think D&D, they think role-playing game. It's sort of like Xerox, right? Or Kleenex. Like, they think about Xerox and Kleenex. Nobody thinks about, oh, well, Canon isn't Xerox. Canon, that's a copier, right? Or Band-Aid. All of these different brands that have become synonymous with the overall thing. They've dominated the overall thing. D&D is pretty much like that. That D&D, many, in, in the eyes of many people... D&D is role-playing games, or D&D is certainly fantasy role-playing games. Call of Cthulhu probably isn't D&D, right? But fantasy role-playing games in general are going to fall under D&D, and that's fine. Those of us who are into the hobby, those of us who are deep into it and understand, we can help people understand that 5e and 5e fantasy role-playing games are not just D&D. There are these other things, too. And in some cases, they're better. I would argue that Level Up Advanced 5e, as it is now, is better than the 2014 versions of D&D. That when you compare them side by side, when I want, especially when it comes to monsters, the Monsters Menagerie, in my mind, is definitely a better monster manual in many ways than the actual monster manual is. So I think that there is a, you know, that, that it's important that we remember that because like, not only is it important so that we're not putting too much authority over this hobby that we love with any one company, which is, I think is very important, but also the product, the, the product line is wider and richer. And there are many cases where I can point at products that are done by other 5e publishers that are better than the stuff coming out of Wizards of the Coast. There are many products coming out of Wizards of the Coast that are fantastic products. And then there's some that aren't. There are also fantastic products coming out of other publishers. And then there's some that aren't. I don't even think you could say that they're a better publisher by and large than anybody else. I'm not sure. There's a few publishers. I'm like, I don't know. It's pretty debatable. They're coming out with really good stuff, right? There's definitely products I like better that I've picked up from other groups. There's also kinds of products that Wizards would never do. Tolis. They're never going to do a 700-page city source book. They're just not. So, you know, a lot of a lot of that is is all over the place. The, the main point, the main point I, I'm hoping you will walk away with from this whole rant is that 5e is like Linux, that 5e is the underlying system that is now open and available for use to anybody for any role-playing game. And Dungeons and Dragons is one of the games that's using it. They, they are the one that created it as well. Like, and we're not going to, you know, we're not going to point at it. They, they made the SRD, right? And they're hopefully, if they stay true to their word, going to make another one. And if you would use, if you do want to say the 5e, the 2024 5e SRD, that makes sense. Cause I think, I hope they come out with one in 2024. I really do. They said that they're going to have the third edition one out and I haven't seen it yet. So, but they said they would. Doesn't mean they can't change their mind. I really hope they don't. And I hope we're loud and yell if we, they don't because they did say they were going to. So it's, you know, it's their SRD and you reference Wizards of the Coast when you use the SRD, but the engine can be used for any role-playing game. And there's such a wide range of different stuff out there that to, to try to define 5e as synonymous with D&D, I think throws a lot of stuff away. It throws away a lot of freedom of the game and again makes it puts it into the realm of more authority. Wizards of the Coast defines what is and isn't 5e. And it takes a, a fantastic array of products, great systems, great supplements, great adventures, things that you can buy that you can improve your game overall. And it kind of ignores them. And I'm under no illusion 
that these other games like tales of the valiant by cobalt press is, is like it looks like they're on track to make a million dollars on their kickstarter the biggest kickstarter they've ever done out of like 17 kickstarters but let's not fool ourselves they are not and i'm sure wolfgang bauer the head of cobalt press recognizes and knows this they are not a competitor to D. They are not going to be sitting on the same shelf space and they're not going to sell even an order of magnitude, you know, close to what Wizards of the Coast sells for D&D. I don't think that matters to them and I don't think it matters to us. We get to choose whichever ones we want. Those of us who know that Tales of the Valiant exists knows that we can use that if we want. Same way with Level Up Advanced 5e. We know that it's there. They don't have to outsell Wizards of the Coast. They don't, you know, it's trying to compete with them. Teo Sabadilla has this wonderful article on AlphaStream about the people who talk about how other groups were trying, particularly Paizo and Pathfinder, and how they were competing with D&D. And they're like, until you're selling baloney in South America that's branded with D&D, you're not going to compete with D&D. You're not making a movie. So, like, you, you never have to worry about another group overtaking D&D. It's, I mean, I, mean, I want to say it's impossible, but it's going to take a lot more work than we've ever seen anybody do. However, that doesn't mean those other books don't exist and that they're useful to us and that those of us who know about them and study them. And if you're watching a show like mine, you've seen a lot of these other things that are valuable to our game for low price, relatively low price, many times, you know, crazy low price with material we can bring into our game and use that makes our game better. And we don't need to worry about which publisher is doing it. And we don't need to worry about what publisher is doing what stuff that we might like or might not like because we can use any of these things. And that doesn't even get into other games and other systems too, of which there are hundreds. So yeah, so that's the main, the main thing I was trying to get to with this whole thing is that I think it's disingenuous to a lot of different publishers, but also to the strength and resilience of our game. If we treat 5e like it's D and D and we treat D and D like if we treat 5e like it's D&D. There was an article, a blog post that was sent around in a couple of different channels that I subscribed to by the 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 Indie Indie Og Studio, Indri Og Studio, which I think is from Norway. And they had a interesting article about what is high trust trad adventure design. This is a phrase I had not heard of before, but I guess has been around a little bit. We did, we did a little bit of digging folks. Hamza on our, on our discord server did a, a dug into it, had recognized the term, which as far as I can tell, this is one of those terms where like, if you describe what you think it is, five people will tell you that you're not describing it right. So I'm going to describe it and I'll get a bunch of YouTube comments from people saying I didn't describe it right. I think it's really talking about like traditional adventure design is in the style of RPG play like we might be used to with something like Dungeons and Dragons as opposed to sort of other sort of story focused games where the style of play like Fiasco would not be considered a, a traditional role playing game. And then there was this idea of high trust versus low trust. And I'll be honest, I got lost in the lingo a little bit. I got lost in some of the concepts here, but I think I really liked the idea behind it. And I think it's sort of captured and talked about some of the styles that can make running D&D so different. One of the things about D&D, particularly running 5th edition in particular, getting back to that, D&D and 5th edition are the same thing. There'll be a link to this article in the show notes below, by the way. There is a link in the show notes for this for this article. And But the, the concept was this idea of like, you know, and I, I think... I mean, I'm even having trouble kind of articulating it myself. But when you think about high trust and low trust, the trust is in two different directions. One is a high trust game is one where the players are trusted to interact with the role playing game in in 
in sort of a, a you know a good in good conscience that they are they're there to engage with the adventure they're going to make decisions that help move the adventure along they're going to make choices that are helping the game move forward in the same way that the gm is running a game to empower the characters to make them do the things that make them cool as characters to make the the game fun and not you know it is not a game and it's not an adversarial game i think for me like the easier and i don't think it's a perfect synonymous connection with the with the with the vocabulary of an article like this but i think of like a competitive versus a cooperative game master is one way to think about it like i'm i definitely like to think that i lean on the side of being a a cooperative game master who's working with the players to all together share a really fun story that we're going to create a fun story together and i'm a fan of the characters i want the characters to do cool things i want to i want them to be empowered to do cool things in the game i want to give them an i want to give the players an understanding of things that their characters would know and the alternative is sort of a more of a gotcha style, which is more of a competitive GMing style. You might think about these like if you're sometimes if you go to conventions, they have like competitive D&D games and stuff like that. That could be an area where you see more of a competitive DMing style that it's and, and some of this you see a little bit and I'm not criticizing don't don't yell at me friends of the osr you don't have to yell at me but one of the osr things is like that you challenge players not characters that you set up that situation and you challenge the players and i can understand that i understand where they're coming from with that style but one of the tricks is i also believe that many times things get lost in the communication between a dm and the player that and i've, I've said this before that players understand about half of what you're describing as a as a gm so I also want to make sure that if the characters would be aware of something that the players aren't aware of, you tell them. And so that way you don't have situations. It makes trap detection as an example kind of difficult because trap detection can very much be a gotcha situation. But I kind of follow the Justin Alexander idea that nine out of 10 traps should be discovered by the characters because that's trap detection is fun. Tripping a trap is not necessarily fun. So. That concept of like high trust versus versus low trust gaming, I think, you know, if you kind of think it about the idea of like adversarial or competitive GMing on one side and cooperative GMing on the other side, you can kind of think about, look, what are the styles? To me, a good a good litmus test on this, a good test is when your monsters critically hit, how do you feel about it? Do you like it or do you not like it? I mean, I mostly don't like it. Like, I don't want to see creatures by luck crush a character it happens and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna bury it i'm gonna roll with it but i'm on the character side and likewise if the characters critically hit i get excited about it that's something that i enjoy i like to see the characters have good circumstances and good fortune and 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 have really fun things happen i also like to see bad things that happen that move the story in a fun and interesting direction that's really exciting for me too. That's that real fail forward kind of idea. So I really like that. So I think that there are some, there's a lot of interesting ideas in this, in this article. At the very end, they sort of have like the features of high trust, the minimal features of high trust trad adventure. And again, I get like the, the lingo of high trust trad and low trust trad. I get, I get kind of, I know that there's details and subtleties in there that I am not getting. The way I'm thinking about it is, you know, trad games is more like your D&D &D style games. I might be wrong about that. 
And that high trust versus low trust for me is that sort of cooperative versus competitive play. If your players are holding information back from you as the GM, they're being competitive on the other side. If they are trying to build characters that are beating the adventure or like they've they've min-maxed a stat so that they know they never have to worry about something again, that's an example of sort of a competitiveness on the other side, right? Where they are they engaging in good faith in the game at that point? If they said like, I found a loophole and if I use this loophole, I know that I don't have to worry about this thing in the game anymore. Not because it makes sense in the story, but just because I found this hack in the game where I found an optimal choice. I think that's where we see adversarial gameplay happening on the player side is when they're, you know, picking specific things all the time or a specific combination of things that can that can you know break that game it's like it's one thing to take sharpshooter if you're an archer in your DD game and you take sharpshooter and you're using sharpshooter to fire and you're doing a whole lot of extra damage it's something else to take like you know sharpshooter with the hand crossbow proficiency where you can fire two hand crossbows and because you also took this other feat you can fire them without worrying about reload so you're just a machine gun of bolts with hand crossbows that are also doing plus 10 damage each and you're doing 190 damage at level seven that's one where i think you've gone overboard in the other direction like you know that sort of that sort of like perfect min masking you see it with things like Polearm Mastery plus Sentinel, right? A combination of Sentinel plus Polearm Mastery. Now, maybe like that one's not too broken, but it depends on what the player is doing. The cure for that is you say that you're running a theater of the mind and then you lightning rod that. You say, I'm going to the hurl dudes at you. So you're nailing with the Polearm Mastery, but you only have one reaction, right? You can't do it all the time. So there are things like that. But anyway, th- these ideas of, of the minimal features and then the excellent, this is about adventure design in, in general. The idea of a high trust adventure provides gameplay focused on in-character creative problem solving. The fusion of role play with gameplay. To that end, as just a regular traditional game with some critical points of emphasis, an adventure consists of a problem or more often a tangled set of problems for the PCs to solve. Central problems are non-presumptive. There is no presumed correct or optimal approach to them. So no mechanized set pieces, puzzles, or riddles, nor is there a notably finite solution set, i.e., you're setting up a situation and you're letting the characters and letting the players decide how they're going to interact with that situation. You don't have a preconceived notion of what they're going to do. To the greatest extent possible, the adventures and gameplay are free from anything that would require out-of-character attention to the player. I'm not sure I quite get that, but I think that's more like you're putting something physically in front of them that's going to demand more of their attention than what's happening in the world. You might think of like a really complicated the you know, tabletop scenario or maybe a puzzle. I'm not, I'm not exactly... I'm not sure I get that 100%. Features of an excellent high trust. The adventure stakes are designed to complement and or challenge PC motives and natures. That feels a little lightning roddy that you've sent the situations that you're setting up showcase the kind of things that the characters can do. The adventural central problems are rich with characterize, characterizing potential. The characters get more interesting. This idea of a character-focused approach that we take with Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master being a good example. The adventurous challenges are designed and tested for fairness. There's a non-adversarial form, so the idea is not to defeat or stymie the PCs, but give them opportunities. So, wh- so while neither the adventurer nor the GM imposes or favors a given approach to any given problem, the GM is well-prepared for many. Yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that. The adventure can be concluded in a way that feels satisfying even if the PCs don't succeed or only partially succeed. This is that like realism versus fun. If, if you just focus on realism in your game, your players could walk away having a bad time. But you want to make sure like, well, can we be as realistic as possible but also aim it in a fun direction? I think so. 
Often a tangled multi, multi-problem nature of the form and emphasis on characterizing potential means PCs will approach problems with layered personal priorities and excellent adventures are constructed and tested with that in mind. Often a plus, opportunities for productive exploration in fascinating and sometimes surprising locations. Fantastic locations, it makes sense. Often a plus, opportunities for productive communication with fascinating and sometimes surprising NPCs. Make rich NPCs. Very often a plus, a layer of mystery, secrets and clues. So you can tell that like, at least I'm wrapping my own model around this model and saying, oh yeah, it all makes sense. But I think these are pretty good ideas. And the article is a good one that describes that that sort of difference between sort of the adversarial gotcha nature of some styles of play with the 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 focus on building a shared story with players who are invested in the style of game that you want to play i think it's i think it's really interesting and i think a, a way to kind of really dive into this which is something that i've talked about a lot and i really like is the idea of situational based adventures that instead of setting up a series of scenes where you expect scene one to happen after scene two happen after scene three, which could still be a lot of fun. Light of Zaraxxus, the Spelljammer adventure is really well run adventure and I really enjoyed it, but it's definitely linear. It's definitely a, a, a you know, as they, as they refer to a railroad, but it wasn't bad. There were still lots of opportunity for the characters to do things. It was still really fun. I really liked it. And you could still set up situations. There were situations in that one. I still kind of said, like, here's this big battle. Here's what's going on. Here are the options you have in front of you. What are you going to do? And that, so you could still drop situations in. And it could be situation after situation after situation. Like, you learn something. You, you're in a location. You have an objective for that location. You have adversaries who are in the way of you achieving your objective. And then you may have other variables that are in there. And this, it's kind of this idea, like, everything is a heist right that with a heist you have you know what's the thing we're trying to steal who are we trying to steal it from where do we have to go to steal it what are some of the circumstances that are going on and what weird like random effects might occur while we're going what what other complications could occur if you think about building your adventures that way boy they're fun and i've seen published adventures that were written this way so there was a particular eberron oracle of war adventure where the adventure itself and the gm who ran it for for myself my 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 friends my wife and i all played it and they said like you have to go infiltrate this massive rolling fortress but you get to decide how you're going to engage that situation you have a goal you have to get to like the central control room and take out the leadership that's there but you decide how you're going to get aboard this massive rolling machine how you're going to make your way there subterfuge fighting you know weird climbing however you want to engage with it you get to engage with it and it was a really fun adventure it was actually a lot more fun than many of the other adventures league adventures i've played because adventures league adventures because they're four hours because they're limited because they want to make sure that you get enough going on they tend to not go into that sort of situation based approach instead they're usually pretty linear but that idea of building adventures around situations here's this location here's what it looks like here's the objective that you have here are the people that are going to be in your way here are the, the, the opposition that's preventing you from from fulfilling that objective and then other weird complications maybe some that you find out about when you're playing maybe some you know about ahead of time maybe some are completely random but when you build that you set up this thing that is empowering the players to make choices about where they're going to go empowers their characters to make those choices and fulfill them 
it, it builds a situation where you as the GM can't determine how something's going to happen because you don't know what route they're going to pick. You don't know exactly what they're going to do. You can even suggest that there are different ways that they can do this. And then they may say, yo, those three are good, but we're going to do a fourth. And that could be really fun. And I know that some of the most rewarding RPG sessions I've had have come from that style of play, that sort of situation-based design. And I really, I really think that that is all kind of coming back to this idea of like high trust, high trust adventures, adventures where you are giving players and their characters the opportunity to make meaningful choices about the actions that they're going to take in order to fulfill an objective and you're working with the players to make that situation happen you're not being easy on them you're not just giving them this clean path you're making sure they understand the situation and then you're reacting as the world would react given the actions that they're taking it's a really really great way to play and what's interesting about a game like D&D and like games like other fifth versions of 5th edition is that the system can support all these different kinds of play that it's actually pretty free flowing that it can be very story focused theater of the mind you know lots of character agency or it can be this more kind of competitive battle map where are you moving which squares are you going to sort of tactical play it all kind of fits in there and what's funny is there's lots of people in different groups who are all point at the other group saying you're doing it wrong and what's interesting is like none of them are doing it wrong if you you and your players are enjoying the game that you're running that's the way you're going to go the way you're going to play and you can enjoy it because the game kind of supports all that so i think that's one of the things that makes it really strong so it's a really fascinating article i would i would definitely recommend taking a look you can find a link to that down in the show notes below so let's do a couple of patreon questions today every month we open up a a new thread on the Sly Flourish Patreon where people can ask any questions about RPGs. I answer every single question on that Patreon thread every Friday morning. Some of those questions I take and bring to the show to talk about further. Schizogen, Schizogen says, my players and I are looking for a more narrative-driven system. We were just talking about this. After listening to your recent episode where you mentioned playing Dungeon World at a convention, I picked it up a copy and we are really excited about what we have read so far. Given your recent experience, how would you adapt the eight lazy steps to accommodate such a different style of game or would you not change anything at all so good good question dungeon world in particular and there are certain rpgs where they have their style of prep is already wired into the game they unlike a game like DD or other other rpgs where they're kind of like well you can do prep a lot of different ways and here's some suggestions dungeon world has a particular way that it's intended to be played and this the first session gets into that character building the players actually drive a lot of the creation of locations and situations and challenges that are going to occur and while they're building their characters while they're building the connections the 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 gm is grabbing some of these ideas and building sort of a larger structure and then after that first session if you in in dungeon world as, as you read it after that first session is where the gm then starts to do things like defining villains building interesting locations coming up with scenarios and things like that but actually many of the steps from return of the lazy dungeon master and many of the ideas from lazy dungeon master came from dungeon world many of those ideas are there so the 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 eight steps from return wouldn't work well for the first session of your dungeon world game in kind of the same way that the lazy dm process doesn't work for a session zero of an rpg there's a different way of handling a session zero than there is in necessarily doing prep for a session but once you're past that first session once you've done that sort of equivalent of a session zero where you understand what the world is like you understand what the challenges are you know what the locations are you know what the interrelation between the characters are then the eight steps i think work 
just as well for Dungeon World as they would work for D&D or any other role-playing game. But the big question is when you're looking at your role-playing game, the whole point of the eight steps is to make you feel like you've got what you need in order to run the game that you want to run. And sometimes those steps make sense and sometimes they don't. And that's the beauty of it is you can pull a step out and throw it away and have a new step or, or you can add other things in there if they make sense for the RPG. But I, you know, I don't, I, I would have to say that I think the steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master work for almost any role-playing game that has that same kind of centralized feel of characters in a GM characters are going off in adventures doing things, whether it's space-based, whether, you know, whatever the system is underneath, it works for many of them. The only systems it doesn't work for are systems that really don't handle the idea of a role-playing game the same way as I guess what we would call traditional role-playing games, where you have a GM that's focused on kind of telling the story and sharing the narrative and players who are each responsible for a particular character. Schizogen. I hope that answers your question. MTBDM says, what are some good methods to help ease the problems caused by frequent player absenteeism? This is a good question. This comes up quite a bit. And I actually wrote an article, but I did, I did a bit of, of, of a little bit of a study on this on how other GMs handle missing players. And I put it together in an article. I wrote this about three years ago. I'm going to paste it here. You can find it in the show notes. I'll also paste it in Twitch. And the big question is like, what do groups typically do when you have players who don't show up? And I asked a bunch of people, I kind of gathered the results from a bunch of people, kind of figured out, put them into groups. And these are the ones that came up most often. Most often, they simply ignore that they're missing and they keep going on with the story. In the fiction, they might send that character off to go engage in some other activity. They might sometimes let another player handle a character. They might let the GM run the, the character or they might cancel the game. I would say, and, and, and result-wise, we I built a poll around this, and in the poll, 3,100 respondents to the poll, about half of them said they just let the character fade into the background. About one in four of them said they let someone else run the missing character. One in 10 of them let the character go on a side quest, and one in 10 cancel the game. It, that, that last one worries me because I think canceling, because people are going to cancel a lot. I've heard definitely about like, oh, well, we want to have this one person there, but scheduling is really hard. Scheduling is really hard, period right scheduling for rpgs is just really hard it's probably getting getting a group together and getting them to play together regularly is the hardest part of this hobby by far i think according to me and i think many others agree with this and the idea that one in 10 games cancel because one player is missing i think makes for a fragile game because someone's always going to be missing somebody people have lives people have things going on people are very busy they have families they have work responsibilities they have lots of things going on in their lives that are pulling their attention in a lot of different ways for them to all be able to get together to spend four hours to play a game once a week or once every other week is really hard so my recommendation is go with what half of people are doing and let the character fade away just it we all we're all human beings we're all sitting around a table playing a game everyone knows why that character disappeared and the continuity of your story will be okay if that character pulls away there of course are bad situations and bad times this is actually going to happen in my game today there are bad situations where the player who was kind of a key character in that story is not there for that moment i've had that happen a couple of times you just got to find a way to roll with it. I know it's not great advice. I know that doesn't make a lot of sense, but find a way to roll with it. Can you move that part of it later? Can you kind of steer things in a different direction or just run it anyway and let the other players get involved in the situation and then, you know, have that going. But the answer of how do you deal with absenteeism, you know, lots of different ways. There's, of course... What I also offer is how to build a resilient group. And then one of the ways to build a resilient group is have six player. This is for, 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 for fifth edition in particular, have six regular players and two on-call players. 
and they all know who they are. So the on-call players know that they're on-call. The regular players know who the regular players are. The expectation is that the regular players will make it there as often as they can. The on-call players don't have an expectation, but you know that they would like to jump in the game from time to time. Maybe they have other work responsibilities or other responsibilities, but you can call on them to say, hey, are you free for? Are you free to join in the game? Right now, I have like a six plus one for my Thursday game. For my Sunday game, I only have six. The nice thing is you also want to be prepared to run with as few as four. If you're willing to run with as few as four and you have a six plus two, it takes five people canceling before you can't have a game. That's pretty robust. You're going to have a game almost all of the time. Now, if you have people who are really pretty, pretty, pretty consistent, then you probably, you might not need to have on-call players. But if you find that you are, have a group where people are kind of in and out, and especially if you have a player who like really wants to be there, but they just can't get there regularly, you can ask them, are you okay being an on-call player? And then find another player that comes in that can be more regular. And that way you're not kicking them out. You're not saying like, you're out of the group because you don't show up. You're saying, you know, I know you're really busy. Would it work better for you if instead of holding the seat for you and you not being able to attend that instead I I'll let you know when a seat is free, which might be pretty often and you can jump in when you're free. It's just a slight change in how they're coming to the group. But the difference is you're not going to have eight people show up at your table and you're going to have more regular people when you have it. So that, that, that six plus two thing I think is a really good, robust way of having a group. And then when a character can't show up, have them fade into the, have them fade into the background. Devin M says, I would like some additional insight on obscuring hags while also trying to justify why they're allowed to persist. Specifically, I'm looking at Morgana and her two daughters in Curse of Strahd. I want to turn their operation into a business and have figured out the means of production. My issue is why they are allowed to persist. I'm thinking of having them worship an obscure deity that would protect them from the likes of Strahd. This would at least hold up some kind of scrutiny, at least temporarily. The problem is, will I be able to pull it off? Do you have any advice in regards to obscuring details while also not lying to the group. So I think when it comes to obscuring hags, uh, one of the really fun ways is when the very people that the hag is preying on, the hags are preying on, are also protecting the hags. Like, you know, there's this example of like, imagine if you have in a, in a realm that's really, really bad off. Like think about Icewind Dale uh, during the Rime of the Frost Maiden adventure. There's a town in Icewind Dale. Everyone else, like food is getting scarce. It's getting so cold. Food is getting scarce. Firewood is getting scarce. People are starting to get sick. People are starting to die just because the weather is getting worse and worse and worse because of the endless night. But what if there's one town there that's actually doing pretty well? They always seem to get a lot of fish. They seem to have enough firewood. People aren't getting sick. When they do get sick, they're able to get help and get better. All they have to do is sacrifice one child every year to the hags, right? And you think that is horrible, right? It is a horrible situation. But the group might say, look, when we didn't do this, four children froze to death <laughs> that year. So we are net three children if we're giving a, ch- a child to the hag. And maybe they, you know, through like them just ignoring the situation and not paying attention to what they're doing and just turning a blind eye to it, maybe they are supporting the very group who is feeding off of them at the same time. I think that could be a really fun way to 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 run to run hags. And then you don't have to necessarily hide that information from the characters when they get involved. They can learn it. But now they have to have this internal debate of like if we go after and kill those hags this whole town could die because they're so dependent upon it right and that is a really interesting very dark but hags are kind of a dark group right i know that this is sinister you don't have to go with the child sacrifice thing either it could be somebody sacrifices themselves maybe somebody willing sacrifices themselves but you know what is it that they're giving up and so what are the hags giving the town 
right? Are they giving them something else? Are they, and you can imagine that there's lots of ways and there's lots of fairy tales where, you know, the, those who are represented by hags are giving something in return for what they're getting. And maybe what they're giving is to a different group. Maybe there's like a higher echelon that's able to keep in power because they've got this. Maybe there are people that are able to live a lot longer than they normally live, but those hags have to survive. And so they're the ones that are willing to, to make sure that the hags are well taken care of. So I think there's lots of interesting ways that you can sort of have the justification for how the hags are able to do the terrible things that they do and everyone around them is letting them do it and it's because the hags are giving them something that they can't get elsewhere and they've made this dark bargain to keep the hags around i think that's really fun friends i want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in rpgs if you like this show and you want more stuff from me consider subscribing to the sly flourish newsletter there's a link down in the show notes to subscribe you get a free adventure generator pdf and you get an rpg related email sent to your inbox every week you can also support me directly on patreon patrons get access to all kinds of cool exclusive stuff random generators the dedicated discord channel the monthly q a the dwarven forge stuff i was showing before lots of different things you get for being a patron but most of all you get to help support me while i'm putting on shows like this and you can pick up any of my books at the sly flourish bookstore including return of the lazy dungeon master the lazy dms workbook and the lazy dms companion links for all of those are in the show notes thank you all very much have a great day and get out there and play an rpg <laughs>